Hello, Whiskey Files, and welcome to another episode of Pot Still Radio. As always, I'm your host, Matt Heady, Chief Editor of PotStill.com, your independent Irish whiskey resource where we distill and analyze all the news and releases in the market today. This episode is brought to you by our sponsors, the Irish Whiskey Magazine, the only magazine in the world dedicated to sharing the exciting news, lifestyle, and spirit of Irish whiskey. You can find out more at irishwhiskeymagazine.com. And the Tua Glass, a contemporary nosing and tasting glass, a symbol to unify Irish whiskey drinkers across the world. And you can find out more about this beautiful glass at tuaglass.ie. Welcome back, Whiskey Files, to another episode of Pot Still Radio. I am sitting here in the Tullamore Dew Visitor Center, All Bonded Warehouse, with uh, Tullamore's Distillery Ambassador, Kevin Piggish. Welcome to the show, Kev. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Uh, how are you doing today? Are we looking quite busy in the Visitor Center? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, so Friday, early morning, the camp before the storm, the crowd will come in. Fridays are probably the best day here. you got this savage mix between locals and tourists because all the locals from the HSC, some of the solicitors come in and then you've got a big mashup of tourists and everything from Germans, Americans, French, Italians, you name it. So it's a cool mix not to see all locals or all tourists. It's a nice mashup. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and is there is there good support around the town for the for the visitor centre and the distillery? Yeah, I think the visitor centre first off is in the town, right? It's, it's on the doorstep. It's probably the nicest place to grab a coffee in town. So, you know, this setting, the original floorboards, the atmosphere, a bit of energy. It's a beautiful place to grab a coffee. You know, if you're bringing people to the town, it's a nice place to jump in, even for a bit of grub. So, I think a lot of people would be proud of it. When we looked at it recently, you know, Tullamore being as big as it is around the world, about a quarter of a million times, uh, three quarters of a million times a day, Tullamore gets mentioned around the world, as in a shot of it gets drunk. So that's crazy to think that a small town gets that recognition. So, you know, when people go on holidays, sitting at a bar, they tell someone they're from Tullamore, I think there's a little bit of pride knowing what's from that town. Fair enough. Um, I suppose being one of the older Irish whiskey brands out there is certainly one's one of the more famous as well. World number two at the moment, I believe. So, but yeah, I mean, world number two, you're, you're looking at some, some great brand recognition out there. Um, but what's, you know, tell us about the, the distilleries just uh, reopened, what, three and a bit years ago now. Uh, finally, your own spirit to be called whiskey. Um, give us a little insight of what that's like, even even the buzz around the distillery and, and Tullamore Hill. Yeah, I mean, when I started working at Tullamore six years ago, six and a half years ago, Tully didn't have a distillery. It wasn't even, you know, it was on the cusp of an idea. Uh, now, 100 million into a distillery, pretty exciting movement. The distillery started with about 16 people working there. At the moment, we have 92 full-time staff, which is insane. You know, <laughs> full bottling plants, grain distillery, making three styles of triple distilled whiskey. The operation is insane, and finally someone's taken Irish whiskey serious. They're putting their stake in the ground and saying Irish whiskey is a force to be reckoned with. You know, come at me. Yeah, um, fair enough. So, I'm excited for where we're at. We've still got a long way to go. It'll take five, ten years, but I can't wait to be an old man sitting in a pub telling people I was there when that happened, when they put that down, when they put 100 million on a bog. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a presentation, and it's insane. I got some of the engineers to put it together of day one arriving and just looking at a series of quilted forests and some bog. You know, this site looked absolutely crap 
the like the least attractive place to put a distillery, and now trying to envision it going on Google Maps, seeing the screenshots of what it used to be and what it is now is insane. The transition is phenomenal. So I suppose one of my favorite stories is talking to John Quinn, the global ambassador, um, about the, the distillery planning project. It wasn't always destined to be the Tullamore distillery back in Tullamore. Um, and as far as I understand, it was the worst site <laughs> that was on the table. Yeah, I mean, the story goes that there was about 57 sites looked at or examined. I don't know if they were all examined to the fullest extent. The reality was the 57 sites were proposed um, as suitable or potential places. Uh, that was narrowed down to three major ones. Uh, one of them, and um, probably the most um, suitable, would have been Clonmel. Had availability of land beside our bottling plant there was a strong water source the council were on board um, the family themselves had a, a inclination towards Kinsale they had a vision of building a distillery on an ocean looking out over the sea yeah, the uh, Grant's family or? the Grant's family yeah. yeah so Charlie Charlie Gordon uh, the, the previous CEO has passed away since then unfortunately but it was his vision to, you know, he had a boat to be able to come in to the harbour. He had, you know, let's let's drop the N word. There was notions involved for sure, but he wanted to build an incredible aesthetic distillery. He actually did buy some of the land, but there was uh, a fear. I guess there's a lot of um, solicitors who have like summer homes there. We're going to get a lot of planning permission challenges. I think for for some of what we hope to do, we mightn't have able been able to really bring it to the scale we wanted to. Uh, eventually, some of the family in their discussions, the family meetings, uh, I know uh, Kirsten, one of the other family members, was sort of like, wait a minute, you know, how are we not bringing this home? And that really kickstarted a, a conversation going, imagine telling people Tullamore Jews not made in Tullamore. It sort of lacks a bit of authenticity. Um, there was a recognition that Glenfiddich and Balvenie in the northern Scotland, they're a pin that has to get to, right? You've probably been there? Yeah, yeah. And not easy to get there, but if you build it and you make it worthwhile, they'll come. So <laughs> I think that's what they try to do until the morning. Yeah, build it and they will come. So, yeah. so we were saying, built on a bog, there was a huge excavation project done before, before it came out, right? Yeah, so a quarter of a million tons of peat. Offaly County Council, with no disrespect to them, they don't understand what a distillery is. They made us sign a contract that we have to leave the site as it were if we move to Poland, as they quoted. You know, as if a distillery moves to Poland, they didn't really understand we're going to be there for a lifetime. But they made us sign a conservation order that we really leave the site as it, as it was when we first got it. So we can't use the peat. Doesn't mean we won't make peat and whiskey experiments and things like that, but we can't use that peat for such experiments. So is it underfoot or was it cut up and stored somewhere? Or? It, it's literally piled around the site, the perimeter, the back of the site. You can see it behind the bottling plant when you're on site later today. Um, yeah, it's just discarded there as a, a, a minor hill. We'll use it for landscaping around the site, um, but it, it won't leave the site, I promise you. Oh, fair enough. Um, that's definitely something I didn't know either. Um, I didn't know until recently. I actually thought that there was an issue. Maybe the peat was unsuitable. They actually hired some guys who were now work as operators who used to work um, with peat traditionally. And they were obviously in this region, you got some pretty big companies um, that are, are heavily involved in the excavation of a lot of peat bogs and so on. So they have good understanding of it. So we've actually got pretty good expertise on site just your guys previous work experience I know they said that some of it would be suitable but uh, coming down to 
unfortunately, uh, conservation aura that we signed into. That's not the case. Fair enough, fair enough. And it does seem to be kind of a common theme as I'm going around the country talking to different distilleries that a lot of local councils have never dealt with a distillery or a large alcohol production facility, um, I suppose, in recent history. So there's obviously, there's, there's, uh, there's learning on every side, I guess, to be done there, even, even down to, say, fire officers or something who, who are used to, I'm sure, restaurants and hotels and suddenly get landed with a, a what is it, 100 mil distillery. <laughs> yeah, and that's a funny one. I mean, the fire officers, when we went to put the warehouse in Tullamore, was the largest whiskey warehouse in Ireland. There's not, there's not one bigger that I've seen. 55,000 cast capacity. I know Middleton, I think probably some will go up to 30,000, but some of them around the 22. So I'd be interested to hear on your journey yourself if you come across a bigger one. But I think they were against, if the fire officers were against building it because they didn't know it could be done. We actually showed them the ones we have similar size in Scotland uh, with Glenfiddich and things like that. And when they saw that, they were they were okay, but they just wanted to see that they could be done in a safe way. So we've put a firewall down through the middle to separate them into two bays. And by doing that, we seem to have found a solution. Oh, and solutions are, are, <laughs> are a good way to, to help out with getting around all the rules, etc. Yeah. Um, but uh, so so your role, distillery ambassador, um, it's kind of a, a, a mixed role. Um, I know you're involved in the production team, marketing. You do ambassador work as well. Like, uh, what 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 exactly is the distillery ambassador in your eyes, at least? Uh, right now, I love my role. It's very vague in some <laughs> in some ways, which you know makes it hard to pinpoint some KPIs. But uh. No, I guess part of my role fits into being the Irish ambassador, so hosting masterclasses, tastings, events, being present at Whiskey Live, and, and events like that, um, or finding opportunities to, to be the face of the brand. So that that's the first part of my role. The second would be hosting VIP groups at the distillery, be they bartenders, whiskey writers, bloggers, distributors, sales partners, you name it. Um, I guess then the blurry side of it is where I come into sort of the global projects, working on new brand worlds, um, just sort of being involved in a lot of meetings with new digital agencies, new media buying agencies, and, and learning more about where the brand can go, working on new slogans, looking at being a liaison between the marketing team and the distillery team. So allowing some of the guys who've got ideas in marketing to see if it's feasible in the distillery and vice versa. I'm probably going to do a GCD uh, in the coming months as well. Uh, so I've started to elaborate what a GCD is for those who don't know. Yeah, so to do um, a general sort of a certificate of distilling, it's sort of a stepping stone to improving your distilling knowledge, getting a bit more technical. I've sort of learned in a very informal way. And now I just do these sort of two-hour weekly sessions with guys in the distillery. So I ask a different part of, different distiller, a different operator to sit down and go through a different part of the process with me, so I can fully understand, um, just deeper a deeper understanding of, of the whole process, not just you know fermentation, but also looking at you know strike points and mashing, looking at still shapes and how we cool our condensers, what other options do we have, uh, how can we innovate with different mash builds. Uh, so trying to bring some of those conversations together as best we can. So I, I like, I think that's part of the benefit of the role. It keeps it interesting and varied. It's not just distillery tours, it's not just uh, whiskey tastings, it's, it's a whole, um, it's a whole 
broad sort of spectrum of, of sort of insights or just touch points. It doesn't mean I'm running those big projects, but I get just pulled into those meetings and get asked what my opinion is, what's happening out in the market, what are other brands doing, what are things that people feed back to us that we should be doing more of. So we do listen to the market, we do feed back things that people say to me, you know, does the bottle shape need to change? Do, you know, do marketing slogans or events we do gain traction? What are the right ways uh, to align ourselves with macro trends of people drinking maybe less alcohol but better alcohol and drinking, you know, more healthy orientated cocktails? Uh, do we, you know, start putting more health orientated facts on our on our whiskey bottles? You know, do we put 69 calories in a measure of whiskey? Is that a, a good statement to everyone's calorie conscious now? You know, would people drink more whiskey if they knew a pint of Guinness at over 230 calories? Maybe they would. Who knows? Hmm. And I suppose, in, in at least my eyes, one of the things that I'm very excited about these days are, you know, it was funny, um, I suppose for anyone that doesn't know, uh, I was formerly the Tullamore Ambassador in Pennsylvania, uh, but prior to me being the Tullamore Ambassador in Pennsylvania, Kevin was the OG Pennsylvania ambassador for Tullamore that actually opened the market and I suppose you'll agree with me that there's a great brand recognition and love for the growl for the whiskey in Pennsylvania and you know all of the United States you've got Central and Eastern Europe huge brands and I suppose one of the the areas that I felt almost kind of sad about was that people who say to me all the time you know rocking out in Philly or Pittsburgh people say yo I was in Ireland and I didn't see Tullamore anywhere and and it really seems like now uh, that we're, we're we're seeing a much bigger uptrend on the on the Tullamore presence in Ireland, um, I know we've just got two of our former U.S. ambassadors are now been hired as Irish ambassadors, um, uh, and then I see you're all over the country in a three wheeled car um, mm -hmm. with uh, new painted buildings all over the country as well. Do you want yeah. to go into that a little bit? Yeah. Um Okay, I mean, like we, we sort of some of us are more in tune with the Irish whiskey history. We recognise that uh, the Williams family, Teresa Williams, married into the Powers family, and um, there was definitely a strategic focus. The Powers was a focus for Ireland, and Tullamore was a focus abroad. We look at the sales of Tullamore, about one point two million cases. We look at Powers, less than one hundred fifty thousand nine liter cases. Okay, so less than ten times the size of Tullamore. When you meet people in Ireland, they think Powers is a big global brand. It really isn't. Um, it was a big domestic brand. So there was a bit of strategic focus of, you know, not trying to have one brand cannibalizing the other. So that's where a bit of the problem occurred. Secondly, I guess the perception of CNC, who Canton and Cochrane owned the brand between 1994 and 2010-2011, they perceived the Irish whiskey drinker as an old, stubborn whiskey drinker who drank what he drank. You know, my granddad drank Paddy to the day he died. He was just a grumpy man. He'd slap an ice cube out of your hand. He wasn't an attractive whiskey drinker to target because he wasn't going to change his mind. So CNC were happy to ch chase those international markets where there was more opportunity. Uh, over the years, William Grant taken over the brand. They've done sort of a, a recalibration of where we need to be strong, and it's important that as a window mark, a window shopper mark, when people come to Ireland, that they see the brand is more present. So we've upped our game, as you alluded to. We've got some of our former ambassadors in sort of regional locations to help push on the brand, identify opportunities, more feet on the ground, um, really drive on the brand. We're the second largest in the world. We need to be more represented in Ireland. Uh, I think we've already drawn a huge amount. When I returned from the States, from Philly, as I mentioned, in New York, um, about four years ago, Tullamore had a distribution in Ireland of 43%. 
Uh, so we're in 43% of bars, hotels and restaurants. Now we're in 85%. So that's a massive change. Um, th there would be, you know, a bit of an answer that some of those bars were not in. You know, maybe they're bars that don't pay their bills. Maybe they're bars that, you know, were paid not to be in. So there's a whole host of, like, questionable things happening there as well. So it's not, it's not always that easy. I'm pretty happy that we're in 90% of the bars that we want to be in. There's definitely a little more work we're going to do, and that's why we have the ambassadors. Um, you mentioned the three-wheel car. Uh, we brought over a vintage uh, Valorex, as it's called, a three-wheel car. It's actually a motorbike engine. It's about 350 kilograms, two-cylinder engine, and we drove it around Ireland. It came all the way from Prague. We got two uh, Tully fanatics in Prague to bring it over. <laughs> Took about six days, 3,800 kilometers. But they drove it over. They then. drove it over in sections, but they did have it in a truck as well for part of the thing. So to be, to be straight up, yeah, they like filmed parts of it on the road of the car, but it would have taken too long in yeah. the car, although it would be capable. Um, but, you know, they had to take ferries to get here, a huge amount of effort. We brought it down to the polar races. And we just wanted to sort of engage with people, talk with people, let them know. Because Tullamore is one of those brands. I did a whiskey tasting in Limerick last night, and people, everyone loved it. The feedback was incredible. But people didn't know the brand. The awareness levels weren't there. So we're definitely an underdog in terms of awareness. So once we get people that taste it to try it, we convert. We get winners, you know. Um, you don't get this big without having some good liquid. We're very confident behind our liquid, so it's just about getting out to people, getting liquid to lips, getting them to try it. Uh, fun, interactive, engaging activations to, to bring people along. And what kind of, I suppose, uh, fun things have you seen coming through either the winning grant lines or, or other people in Ireland like that would be something like well, maybe a little bit out of the ordinary, not just your average tasting. Like, if you see anything in the market in general, and it can be whoever that has really engaged consumers, kind of put you on the spot there now. Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I mean, um, to be fair, Irish distillers in Ireland have just been like banging it out of the park. They're releasing release after release with their method of madness. I thought that was a phenomenal introduction of really challenging. The conventions of Irish whiskey, some would have perceived them to be a bit traditionalist in, in their some of their expressions and their ranges and a bit safe. I think that was a pretty bold move, really impressive liquid, uh, great names, great stories, great innovation using chestnut, limousine, oak, Spanish, all this different sort of um, language and styles of cast. So, really impressed with what they've done. Um, I mean, yeah, I think what they've done to sort of challenge conventions, you know, we go, you've been around the world with, with whiskey and learning about it. You do get sick and when people think it's just one brand, there's so much Irish whiskey. People don't know that there's Connemara, a savage painted whiskey. They don't know that there's rich single malts, incredible spicy pot stills. Now you've got even your, you know, Red Spot 15, which is pretty exciting out. You've got your Dream Cask. We've got some Whopper Irish whiskeys and we just need to like be pureing the hell out of it we need to be far more aggressive you know as irish people we're being way too nice too polite the scots are still perceived way too strongly even i saw whiskey live this year in dublin there's one or two scotch whiskies uh, you know master classes and i think there was 20 proposals and only eight or 12 are going through and they're putting through some scotches and some bourbons I'd much prefer to see just Irish being heavily, heavily promoted. I think if we go to Scotland, do you think there's any Irish whiskey brands being represented at the Scottish Whiskey Lives? Uh, probably not, no. I don't think so. We're going to London, one of the biggest cities in the world. And you know what? Most of those Irish whiskeys aren't even being represented at the right events. 
there's single malt societies and there's not Irish whiskey societies. I want an Irish whiskey society in London killing it, bringing incredible people online who want to work with Irish whiskeys, who want to be ambassadors for Irish whiskeys, who want to promote it. So some tavern in London is this incredible example of an Irish whiskey bar showcasing that can work as a concept. It's one of the coolest, most influential bars in New York, uh, sorry, in London, and they've really shown that Irish whiskey can be that when it's positioned right. So I want to see more people do that, you know, and let's let's move on, let's spread our wings and show what Irish whiskey is. Irish whiskey for the win, to quote, I think it's the boys in Dead Rabbit. <laughs> Who, uh, I might add, and, you know, Dead Rabbit just reopened after an awful fire. And I believe you found yourself on the wall, yeah? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, so I got a message about three weeks ago and uh, one of the guys says, uh, you're, it just sent me a, a blank message like, you're on the wall of the dead rabbit. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm etched in, did someone write my name? He's like, no, there's a photo of you in the dead <laughs> rabbit. And I was like, I didn't put it up. I mean, I didn't, they didn't even tell me, are you sure? And he sends me a picture and it's me holding a, a pint uh, in a bar in Dublin. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny story. I probably can't tell it at all. But um, <laughs> it, it comes from, yeah, the Jack and Sean, the owners of the Dead Rabbit, were in Dublin. I was bringing around some of my favourite pubs in Ireland and we, we jumped into Kyo's for a pint. And uh, they caught me in a giddy mood. There's a bit of banter behind the story, I think. And uh, they just captured a moment. Uh, we had a bit of tongue-in-cheek on the night, I think. And um, they, for whatever reason, stuck it up on the wall. They must have been... Uh, they must have been short of space or they were missing a placard, so they, they stuck me up. But, uh, pretty, Fair enough. Pretty uh, privileged to be put up on a wall in that pub. Usually if your face is on a wall, it's to say, don't, you know, <laughs> don't, let this guy don't come back. I'm sure you saw a few of those in your time in Philly, probably um, in Smith's and Fidel. And <laughs> God only knows, somewhere like the Dolphin. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Actually, out of interest, question for you. What yeah. was one of your favorite like pubs bit off the beaten track in Philly? Because I haven't really talked to you too much since you've been back, so I'm excited to see what, what took your fancy in, in my old home turf. To deep dive into that? Like, what, what? Yeah, Something like, off the beaten track? Yeah, I mean, okay, we all we had our yeah. favourites, the Smiths and some of the top line, yeah, Fado yeah, yeah. and Con Murphy's, but like, give me a place maybe that might have opened in the last few years since I wasn't there, or even a, a place that really connected with you. That's good. That's what you, you asked me the question. I know. All right. that's, well, that's now, now the tables have turned. <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, there was a, a place called, for Pete's sake, that um, myself and the Carlsberg, I suppose, sales manager, uh, we used to do uh, football Sundays. So big up to the Philadelphia Eagles, if anyone's a football fan, football champs. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we did a ton of Super Bowl or uh, American football promotions, football Sundays down there. And it was just a kind of a, it was the neighborhood bar that, everybody wanted to be if that makes sense because right. it was a cool neighborhood bar it had banging food great spoo selection class bartenders but it was a really like people came from around not just the neighborhood but elsewhere to go to this okay. neighborhood bar and that was one of the things i really liked about it it's also owned um by uh, a paddy called uh peter quinn who's uh who's a good friend of mine now i'm about to say and we did some great telemore stuff down there but what made it more ironic is his brother is, at the time I didn't realise this until I got talking to him, but his brother is David Quinn, the master of whiskey science in Middleton. Wow. Um, 
I so, thought you were going to say a cousin of John Quinn. No, 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 no. Of Ranaster. I was going to say, wow. Well, <laughs> no, I think someone probably should have told me about that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's a, there was, I always found it a little bit hilarious doing huge Tully promos in what should have probably been the strongest Middleton Jameson Redbreast yeah. uh, account in Pennsylvania. Um, but uh, we had a lot of fun there. And it was just, it was just because a lot of the other bars we dealt with would have been they're Irish themed or you know and it was called for Pete's sake and there was an Irish twist to it but it wasn't an Irish book it was just a really good corner neighbourhood bar cool. that just, just was just a really fun place to hang out where was it what neighbourhood it was uh, like Christian and or like uh, front and Christian I think so Bella Vista uh, yeah kind of south, south south east south okay cool um but it's out for like real neighborhood like territory. real neighborhood territory yeah cool. um, and that was that was really cool um, as well as the people like we used to just go and hang out watch football and you know it was just a really Philly strong yeah. bar you know okay. um, and then uh, yeah so that was that was a lot of fun hanging out in those bars and and the thing was like you know actually I remember my first time going down there um, I uh, I saw uh, a bottle of Balvenie 17 on the shelf and okay. a bottle of Glenfiddich 15 on the shelf neither of which were opened and okay. for anyone listening this is back when I was working with William Grant so those were sister brands of ours I thought that can't do can't have those unopened on the shelf mm-hmm. so I ordered uh, a glass of each just to crack the cap on both of those bottles and I got this huge I'd say 10 or 12 ounce rocks glass that was about half full of about 8 ounces of whiskey in each one and I went over to the owner uh, about 15, 20 minutes later just to say, like, you know, it's a good game, you're putting on a good spread or whatever. <laughs> he goes to me, he goes, where'd you, hold it? where'd you get that? What's that? No, it's all 12 any 17 up there, yeah, double, yeah, it's great. He goes, what did you work? Just, is that a single? No, uh, yeah. He goes, that's bleeding eight ounces of whiskey. So, um, unfortunately... You got uh, a bartender fire, is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, the worst thing was it was the bartender's first day. Uh, so in the middle of the game, there's like 70 people. He's the only bartender. The owner goes behind the bar and he holds up a jigger, which is just a measuring device, but as something that American bartenders don't use. Yeah, and the uh, owner's shouting at this bartender, this is a jigger. <laughs> this is how we pour scotch. Um... So I, I was I was delighted with myself. I ended up with about sixteen ounces of, of really high class wow, scotch wow. <laughs> uh, out of that one. Nice but, one. Uh, yeah, that was that was pretty good. What uh, what about you? What was enough to be beaten track Philly bar? What was there a reason for that? Well, I mean, I fell in love with Philadelphia. I think I met my like my guardian angel in Philadelphia. I met like some incredible people, um, and they brought me to some unbelievable bars. Um, it's hard to know where to begin, you know, and I used to like this place called Silk City. They used to do um, Second Sundays was this dance party run by a famous DJ in Philadelphia called Lee Jones. He's in his 60s. He's um, a crazy, crazy cool cat and um, big whiskey fan. And yeah, he brought me to places like that, Morgan's Pier, just being outside beside the river in the summer, different vibes and you know, what you really get in Dublin, there's not these big boardwalk type bars that you can just chill outside and look out over a, a bridge as iconic as the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, over in University City at like, wow, was it Jimmy's Barbecue or yeah. that place? I'm trying to think what it is, Baby Blue? Baby Blues. Right? Baby Blues, there's, oh, John, Johnny there does these incredible like pulled pork and really like, 
incredible rubs and steaks and the meat there. Sounds like food. Insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He does a massage place next door. It's it's really legitimate. But no, that was iconic. Um, Yeah, that place, really cool. It was like a hidden bar downstairs, a secret room out the back. I don't know if you ever go downstairs to a bookcase. It was just like no bar in there. It was just like a private room to chill. So sometimes you get some Philly Eagles actually hide in there and have a few pints and just not be disturbed. Because there's two or three of the Eagles be big fans of Johnny. And uh, baby blues, and then to finish off, um, let me think. There was a, a little place for a good quiet whiskey where, like, one of my friends, uh, Daryl or something, go to like the Trestle in Thirteenth and Kyle Hill. It's like a go-go whiskey bar. I don't know how to explain it if you're not, you know, American. The concept does not exist in Ireland. You know, yeah. good cocktails, but sort of a divey bar. It's a famous place that burned down in its previous existence. We actually launched our Tullamore Phoenix there when we launched in Philly. Uh, but then they've sort of got girls dancing. So it's not quite as, like, it's not a strip club or anything like that, but it's just sort of girls dancing on podiums, but in a, a little bit of a, a classier way. It's not as, like, as uh, dirty as some of the, the other places that you might find in, in certain parts of Philly. Uh, we won't mention Delilah's. We'll do a good breakfast, though. <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. I mean, like, talk, I mean, it's good, good character of the city. Um, are, I suppose getting back to the Irish side, um, in in Tullamore itself, do we, do we have any characters that that are dead are that people have to know about if they come to the distillery? Is there anyone that they will end up knowing about, whether yeah. they want to or not? Um, yeah, there's. I mean, there's so many legends in the distillery. It's hard to it's hard to say where to start. I mean. One of the biggest gentlemen in the distillery would actually be a guy called Shane Murray. He used to work in the visitor centre here. Probably the kindest soul you're ever going to meet. Lovely man. He organised our uh, distillery barbecue here uh, last week. He organised a 20-piece brass band to play outside. It lashed rain on the Friday night, so they had to bring everyone inside. We've got a stage brought down on a truck. He organised all himself. So really squeezed you know, a lot of people into this space, which it probably wasn't designed for, but we made it happen. Uh, Shane is one of the most charming Irish characters. He's worth his weight in gold. His hospitality uh, reminds me of how good Irish people are at hospitality. Just genuine hospitality with no no goal or no backward or backhanded sort of agenda, you know? Uh, and then in terms of other characters, we've got Hugh Mooney. Uh, he's, we call him Huge Money, uh, a nickname given to him by Murray Kane, one of the girls who works here in the visitor centre. He's a man from Eaton Dairy, real salt of the earth. Really interesting character. Uh, he's known for trying to sell some of my tour uh, guests uh, Eaton Dairy duck eggs, telling them they're the finest in the world, or giving some ham that his wife has made out of some tinfoil in his back pocket. Uh, you don't know what he's going to do, but he loves meeting people from different countries. He's always fascinated to think that someone came all the way from... South Korea to the Tullamore Distillery, you know, that perplexes him, the love that's out there for whiskey, that people, it makes me even want to travel and explore the world, and they're, they're travellers, they're explorers, they're adventurers, but, and they want to see whiskey distillery, so it makes it, it reinforces that we were right to build something worth coming for, we really want to blow people away when they travel across the world, you know, I want to look that up and check how many miles it is to Seoul and South Korea, but that's, incredible to think you know i think i've had probably 35 40 countries at the distillery and the koreans are probably one of my favorites such a energetic bunch of bartenders to have fair enough and what do you what do you i suppose make 
of whiskey tourism in a sense. But it's funny because like when Irish distillers built their new Middleton distillery, it was built for purpose, as as many alcohol facilities are. They're built for purpose, not for to be showpieces. And in a way, it is kind of perplexing. I mean, I love going, you know, whether it's in Philly going to Yards or Philadelphia distilling, or or if it's it going to you know Connacht distillery in the west of Ireland. Yeah. Like there's, I I'm fascinated by it. And you know, to other people, even my parents have no idea why I want to go to what many would consider a factory or a production facility. Like, what? Where do you think that that kind of love or comes from yeah I mean look the Irish have been making whiskey like bees make honey it's part of our DNA um, I think we need to up our game on, on whiskey tourism you look at the success of the bourbon trail which you've done in the States fabulous way to visit numerous distilleries we, I think we have it on our doorstep we've incredible places you know to visit you know within this short range you've got Kilbeg and this boutique beautiful historic distillery and then you have here, the Tullamore, the modern sort of side of it, a bit of yin and yang, an incredible sort of combination and juxtaposition between what two distilleries can be. Um, where is it coming from? I think people are more interested in what they're drinking. I mean, whiskey is a funny thing. I mean, I don't think people have the same interest in, in seeing a vodka production plant, right? It doesn't have the romance. Distillery tends to have songs and stories and everything hidden behind it. And uh, there's a bit more depth sometimes to, to some of the whiskey distilleries. So I think that brings the interest I think the people in the whiskey industry, there's incredible characters out there that make people fall in love with brands and become whiskey advocates. And, you know, you didn't start out, you weren't born a whiskey fan. You know, someone <laughs> one day inspired you to get into whiskey. Maybe you saw someone talking about it energetically. You got intrigued by some of the nuggets or the stories of how you make it, how you put it in a barrel, the color it gets. Suddenly you're like, wow, there's more to this than meets the eye. Um, so that, you know, that sort of sparked an interest. And I think... Culturally, we're seeing that. We're seeing the, the pop culture references in Mad Men with Don Draper, with Harry Specter in Suits. You know, you can bet your ass that James Bond, the next one, he's going to be drinking a whiskey. Now, unfortunately, when it comes down to money, I bet you'll be a Scotch whiskey. I bet you'll begin with Johnny and we won't finish the second part. But <laughs> mark my words, I think a whiskey will be the next reference uh, drink. In a in a James Bond movie. <laughs> well, the supposedly the original James Bond cocktail I think was in Manhattan. Okay. Uh, uh-huh. In the old uh, Ian Fleming uh, novel, somewhere along the line. Okay. Uh, I'll have to check that out actually. Yeah, and, and and if that's wrong, completely disregard that. Okay, no, that's that'll be interesting. I'd like to do a Tully 007 cocktail. Yeah, that'd be cool. Is a good idea. Um, all right, so you're right. I think you're right. People are, especially in in a it's a it's weird. People have become very. Um, excited and brand loyal and, and in, involved in, in especially when you're spending money on on the likes of alcohol and one of the things i love um about whiskey drinkers in particular is and, and i don't think you see it in, in some other industries uh i won't name names wine um but people love sharing um whether it's stories or the spirit itself um i always say it's funny like i have whiskey bottles at home that i'm literally waiting for somebody to come over so I can open it, you know, uh, someone who can go, Jesus, look at this, isn't that amazing? Let's yeah. drink the whole bottle cool. in two settings. Because we wouldn't do it in one. Um, Sip responsibly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but what's, what's, uh, what's one thing that's not immediately obvious about the new Tullamore distillery that you'd love people to know, or you love showing people something maybe that's not even on your VIP distillery tour? Something a little maybe off the beaten track that you think is class. 
Um, my favorite thing to show people is I've got probably 50, 55 samples from the warehouse of everything from experiments that didn't work to the experiments that did work to the experiments that are going to happen in the future. And to me, that's the coolest thing. I love showing people that because it's not something we technically plan to incorporate into the tour, but I'm so interested like to show, okay, this is some new oak we put it in. It was too punchy. It was too, too aggressive. It wasn't the right thing to do. We overaged this and... You know, we used a lot of beer casks are finishing, but we didn't really get any desired flavors. IPA casks and that wasn't really something we found was that interesting. The end result wasn't, you know, something we were overly happy with. If we go back to the drawing board and we find one of the experiments we like, we might do it. But at the moment, we weren't so happy with that. We brought out our XO rum cask recently. Caribbean rum cask has gone down a treat. Uh, people seem to love it. We, we brought out uh, a decent amount this year. I'd say about 90,000 bottles. It's sold out in six, six to ten weeks um, in terms of shipments or depletions out of out of the distillery. We're trying to make three times that next year. So we're all guns blazing, trying to make three times that amount for next year. So we're, we're under a lot of pressure as well. So that's an innovation that did work. So I think I, I like showing that process because people think, you know, maybe behind the scenes you haven't put the thought into how you make different whiskies or how you come up with ideas, but there's a lot of trial and error. And I like to showcase there are ones that don't work. And sometimes they're not bad, but are they good enough to put on that global stage? You know, we're entering big competitions against heavy hitters. We want to be winning. And we're super excited, you know, that the 18-year-old won a pretty prestigious award just last week, the week before. You know, the first Irish whiskey, I think, to win it since 2009. So that was, you know, great for us. That's our oldest age statement. And hopefully going forward, we'll have you know, some quite uh, old age statement whiskies. We're waiting for the right moment to release them. So we're able to ask if there's anything new coming down the line? or Yeah, I mean, to be honest with some of them, we, we, we don't, just don't have a plan yet. We, we don't know when or what's the best way to release it. What's the best way to make the most impact? Um... We've got, as I said, some really old stocks of some really interesting liquids, but um, we, we don't release too much at the one time. Some other brands are doing that, and you're sort of confusing the market too much. We'd rather bring out one brand and let a lot like the XO, and let's push that. Let's make that well-known, make sure people have tasted it, rather than throwing out three or four expressions. There's some brands that we all know that bring out a new expression every week, and that's great, but it's just sort of like, what's the point? It's small batch releases. People have one and then they can't get it again. We like to get customers something that they can get and actually consistently drink. And, you know, that, that's something that bad any had in the States. You know, they've run out of a variant and people get frustrated they can't get it. We don't really, we want to create whiskeys that people can regularly drink, if possible. So, um, what's coming down the line? We're already starting to open up what, what innovation looks like in the distillery. And that conversation probably started a bit more heavily in the last 12 months. Um, reason being when we started the distillery the project was to get up and running and make sure we got totally original sorted you know that that's the primary part of our business we need to recognize that we need to make sure that's perfect uh, we need to ensure we get that consistency and we're doing a very good job at the moment what we need to do going forward is to see spirit cuts that's probably one of the first ways we're going to innovate uh, looking at some of the historic mash bills working with Fiona O'Connor doing his PhD on the innovative use of Irish mash bills uh, of historic mash bills, so seeing what we can do there, uh, you know, and examining those mash bills, you know, are they are they right to use those mash bills? Because were they used for economic reasons, financial reasons, or you know, just 
flavour enhancing reasons we don't really know you know if someone looks back in 100 years and says why did Irish whiskey use bourbon you know the reality the honest answer could be availability not anything else so um, we need to take all those things into consideration uh, I think single pot still is something that we're obviously going to be proud to do a lot of work on in the future it's been the sort of in the, the hands of one company for the last few years so it'll be exciting to see other brands releasing their interpretations of what single pot still whiskey is and hopefully, hopefully it will be for Irish whiskey what single malt is for scotch well I suppose one of the things that's not entirely evident as you look at the distillery project yeah is that it's not called the Tullamore Jew distillery yeah um, I, I, let you <laughs> I think you're reading more into it than, uh, than is there. Uh, my understanding of the it says Tullamore Distillery on the outside. When the distillery was set up in 1829, it was called Tullamore Distillery. The do DEW didn't come until much later when Daniel started working at the distillery. So part of that was it gives us flexibility to you know if we do want to bring out additional brands and that at the moment that's not in the plan. We just make Tullamore. We're not like Middleton that have. A multitude of different brands and one multi-complex distillery where Tullamore Dew is all we make there. Currently I can put my hand up and say that's all we're making right now. We may change that in the future if we decided that was appropriate uh, but for the moment no. The plan, I guess the big plan and what we're trying to do next is actually we're going to build Ireland's largest cooperage. That's 2019 head cooper already sorted. We're looking for two apprentices still and that would be an exciting moment to bring the art of coopering back to Tullamore. Fantastic. I suppose one of the newest things you've got on site is the new grain distillery. Yeah. Uh, and you're t- going away from the French corn, uh, which seemed to become some kind of uh, start of uh, Irish whiskey grain making. Um, and you're going uh, towards the wheat production, which kind of falls in line, I guess, with the rest of William Grant's facilities. Uh, is there is there much of a difference, do you think, in, in the base spirit? Or is, it, is it interesting, better, different, same, same? Yeah, good question. I mean, uh, Sergio from the Irish Whiskey Magazine was at, at the distillery yesterday and he said, we're the only Irish distillery using Irish wheat. So can someone please tell me why we're using French corn in our whiskies? I'd, I'd love to see more Irish whiskey brands using Irish wheat. Um, yeah, as you said, William Grant have a good knowledge of wheat. We want to try and use as much as Irish produce as we can. Uh, obviously, if there's a bad year, a bad season, we'll use what we can get our hands on. But for the moment, we're working our best to use Irish wheat. Um, some of the sensory uh, analysis at the beginning has been incredibly positive. Um, I think the flavor of a lot of the wheat is, is it's a lot more notable than say some of the, the French corn alternatives that are very neutral in spirit. Um, so I guess that can come down to a, a, well, a, a series of different factors. But for me right now, the wheat seems quite interesting. There are a few little things, I guess, teething issues that we had learning about it operating it through our hammer mill and things like that but I think we've got to a point now where we have a pretty good understanding and the grain distillery is running very well. The only thing that we're worried about is another cold winter like we had last year. A lot of the distillery is exposed outside so very cold and weather does cause uh, operational challenges for the grain distillery. Fair enough. There's actually a nice tall building beside it. Yeah. And when I when when I was working with Tullamore and we came back to view this beautiful new grain distillery, I was looking at the wrong bloody building. <laughs> <laughs> kinda I kinda got a general point in the right direction. I was staring at phrasing, that doesn't look too tall, I kinda look past it. Oh, grain distillery is over there. Right, cool. So yeah, very much exposed outside. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that, I can I didn't even think about the, the cold weather over there. Yeah, Stormophilia, which was a big uh, storm we had uh, in early 2018 here, and actually for the first time since the distillery opened, it closed the distillery for three days. Wow! For the safety of the workers, we had to close the distillery. We had a lot of pipes burst. Um, it was very challenging, particularly when you're continuously mashing, continuously distilling in those column stills. Uh, yeah, it gets really tricky, and, and once you delve into the process and the technical side, it, it gets very complicated when you're trying to regulate temperatures, when you've got cooling towers, when you've got fermentation tanks, and you're trying to keep everything at very optimum temperatures. And when you're striving for consistency in a whiskey, you don't want those sort of sub-zero temperatures for prolonged periods of time. Fair enough. Um, and just, I suppose, as we're coming towards the end now, um, I have one story that I particularly loved when working with Tom Moore that um, I suppose I, I really love you to recount, and I'm sure you do a much better job than I will, um, that when the new distillery opened, there was a handing of the keys moment that I think is, is very poetic and storyboardy, like... Um, but obviously it actually happened. Do you want to run us through kind of what happened with that? <laughs> okay, yeah, so uh, to begin the story, in 1954, a gentleman closed the distillery gates uh, with keys that are held in the building we're sitting in today, the old bond warehouse, the original distillery. So 1954, he closed the gates to the distillery, he handed the keys back to the Williams family, the owners at the time, and he moved to New York City. He moved out to New Jersey, married a Jersey girl. Yeah, so essentially he moved out to Jersey and lived in a place called Ridgewood. Um, I had an opportunity to meet him years ago and I'll come around to how, how that came to be, but Tom was invited as the guest of honor to reopen the distillery 60 years later. So he came over with his family to be the guest of honor, to cut the ribbon, to hand over the keys to Denise Steph, Devney, the head of site, the head distiller at the moment. So it was this iconic moment, the sort of handing of the baton, um, an old man and a younger woman, the sort of contrast and you know, what whiskey drinkers have become, you know, it's not just my granddad, the old school whiskey drinker, it's young, it's male, female, it's whiskey's audience has changed and evolved and we need to evolve with it. But I think that was a really cool moment, moment to see that, to have him talk about the old distillery, how disjointed it was, how more laissez-faire and relaxed. If you needed to help out down in the warehousing, you get thrown in for the day. Now we're so specialized in our tasks, with insurance, with all these policies, we can't, you know, I can't just jump in and distill for a day. That's not how it works. So the world has changed. I remember him referring to the distillery and saying it was too clean. Uh, he may have dropped an F-bomb in an interview with RT that was blanked out. <laughs> he referred to the story as a spaceship, so he did not read the cards of what we told him to say <laughs> at all. Um, I'll give you two cool stories, though. I was, about a year after he passed away, not long after being at the distillery, his family came back with their grandkids, and they were like pointing up, like, that's granddad. And like the whole sort of family broke into tears, and it was just a weird moment to think, they actually were really emotional thinking that on every single tour of the distillery we stop and we take a moment and talk about Tom and they thought that was the coolest thing that their dad slash granddad in the family was getting a little reference on every tour because um, they were really proud he came back you know to the states and his last few months in Jersey was sitting in pubs in the gaslight in Ridgewood telling everyone that, you know how big a deal he was made of for the day and um, what's really cool is then a few months after I had a, a bartender from Jersey and uh, he was asking me, inquiring a little more. I guess he was trying to see if I was, you know, blowing smoke or whether this was a true story. 
And uh, he rang his dad there and then. His dad used to work in the gaslight. And the dad, he sent a picture of the frame on the wall. And the dad was like, yeah, that's Tom. He used to drink in the pub all the time. So this guy, bar, US bartender from Jersey, shell-shocked, going, holy crap, my dad says Tom was a regular. And that here he is framed on the distillery wall as you walk out on the distillery floor. Pretty whopper. That's a, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty cool story. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that story. I mean, there's more to it. Um, I don't even know where to begin, but when I was, uh, after Philadelphia, I was moved up to be the New York ambassador. I lived with a girl from Ridgewood, New Jersey, in Manhattan. She had offered me a chance in 2013 to meet Tom. Uh, she said her dad drank with a old guy in a pub. He said he used to work in the Tullamore Distillery. Would you ever like to meet him? In the States, you might have known this yourself, you meet lots of people who tell you they used to work in the distillery when it's not so true, and they tell you wrong years, and, you know, sometimes you don't know who to believe, and I'd never heard his name before, so I had no reason to believe him, uh, and I never actually took the opportunity to meet him back then, and I sort of was sick and I didn't. Years later, when he was invited to the distillery opening, she wrote me a message saying, I heard Tom's coming over to the distillery, and I was like, oh my god, I had a, pl- a chance to meet this man on my journey in the States, which would have been very cool, and I, I blew it, so sometimes you should trust people. <laughs> uh, well, well, at least it all worked out in the end. Uh, it did, it did. He got to cut the ribbon, he got to see it in the last few months of his life, and I think he, that was a nice sending off. Absolutely, and it is nice that this picture is still above the wall, so. And it'll stay there, it'll yeah. stay there. And uh, there are nice touches around the distilleries, some stones from the other distilleries in Scotland and stuff, so there is, there is a good bit of symbolism throughout the, uh, distillery as well uh, if you ever get the chance to to walk in and get a Kevin Pickett tour yeah uh, we've got the Glenfiddich family stone above the distillery we do want to always remember that it is a family owned company today working on the bottling plant is the son of the chairperson he's working on the bottling plant as part of a company rotation they teach the company and the family to be part of the business they have to work in every aspect of the business distilling marketing production warehouse bottling from top to bottom so they get a whole perspective i love that they want this to continue they don't want to as I say give the company the greedy shareholders they're sixth generation distillers this is in their blood they're not doing a conor mcgregor jump in to make some money just to make some noise these guys love whiskey since the beginning you know there's and that, that's something beautiful uh, there's a lot of things with the company that their values you know they have a foundation if you if i donate money to charity they match that um, they have some really good values and you know that's part of the reason when I started with Tullamore a few years ago and why I've tried to stick with them as much as possible I do really respect what they're about yeah. well Kevin thank you so much for your time today um, loving the surroundings here in the Tullamore Old Bonded Warehouse um, and uh, I, I really really appreciate you giving us the time to talk through the I suppose the brand history and uh, have a little laugh in the way so I'll say uh, Thank you very much. Welcome back and uh, good luck with your, your new whiskey adventure. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kevin. And if you want to keep up to date about the Tullamore sipster Kevin Piggott, check him out on Instagram at Tullamore Kevin. And as always, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please click subscribe, share with your friends. You can check us out on potstill.com. We're also on iTunes and Acast for you Android users out there. And as always, if you've any questions, queries, comments, or topics you'd like to hear me cover, you can reach out to me directly on Twitter at potstilled underscore. Until then, slaunch it.